Section 16 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 16, Mohammedans in India, Bloody Invasions under Mahmud, A.D. 1000, by Alexander Dow. While Buddhism was giving place to Hinduism in India, a new faith had arisen in Arabia. Muhammad, born A.D. 570, created a conquering religion and died in 632. Within a hundred years after his death, his followers had invaded the countries of Asia as far as the Hindu Kush. Here, their progress was stayed, and Islam had to consolidate itself during three more centuries before it grew strong enough to grasp the rich prize of India. But almost from the first, the Arabs had fixed eager eyes upon that wealthy empire, and several premature inroads foretold the coming storm. About fifteen years after the death of the prophet, Othman sent a naval expedition to Thana and Broach on the Bombay coast. Other raids toward Sindh took place in 662 and 664, with no lasting results. Hinduism was for a time submerged, but never drowned, by the tide of Mahometan conquest, which set steadily toward India about A.D. 1000. At the present day, the south of India remains almost entirely Hindu. By far, the greater number of the Indian feudatory chiefs are still under Brahmin influence. But in the northwest, where the first waves of invasion have always broken, about one-third of the population now profess Islam. The upper valley of the Ganges boasts a succession of Muslim capitals, and in the swamps of lower Bengal, the bulk of the non-Aryan or aboriginal population have become converts to the Mohammedan religion. The Muslims now make 57 millions of the total of 288 millions in India. The armies of Islam had carried the crescent throughout Asia west of the Hindu Kush, and through Africa and southern Europe, to distant Spain and France, before they obtained a foothold in the Punjab. The brilliant attempt in 711 to found a lasting Mohammedan dynasty in Sindh failed. Three centuries later, the utmost efforts of a series of Muslim invaders from the northwest only succeeded in annexing a small portion of the frontier Punjab provinces. The popular notion that India fell an easy prey to the Muslims is opposed to the historical facts. Mohammedan rule in India consists of a series of invasions and partial conquests. During 11 centuries from Othman's raid, about A.D. 647, to Ahmad Shah's tempest of devastation in 1761. At no time was Islam triumphant throughout all India. Hindu dynasties always ruled over a large area. The first collision between Hinduism and Islam on the Punjab frontier was the act of the Hindus. In 977, Jaipal, the Hindu chief of Lahore, annoyed by Afghan raids, led his troops through the mountains against the Mohammedan kingdom of Ghazni in Afghanistan. Subuktigan, the Ghaznavid prince, after severe fighting, took advantage of a hurricane to cut off the retreat of the Hindus through the pass. He allowed them, however, to return to India on the surrender of 50 elephants and the promise of 1 million dirhams, about $125,000. In 997, Subuktigan died and was succeeded by his son, 
Mahmud of Ghazni, aged 16. This valiant monarch, surnamed the Great, reigned for 33 years and extended his father's little Afghan kingdom into a great Mahometan sovereignty, stretching from Persia on the west to far within the Punjab on the east. Mahmud was born about the year 357 of the Hegira, or 350, according to some authorities, and, as astrologers say, with many happy omens expressed in the horoscope of his life. Subuktigin, being asleep at the time of his birth, dreamed that he beheld a green tree springing forth from his chimney, which threw its shadow over the face of the earth and screened from the storms of heaven the whole animal creation. This indeed was verified by the justice of Mahmud, for, if we can believe the poet, in his reign the wolf and the sheep drank together at the same brook. When Mahmud had settled his dispute with his brother Ishmael, he hastened to Balak, from whence he sent an ambassador to Manzur, emperor of Bokhara, to whom the family of Ghazni still pretended to owe allegiance, complaining of the indignity which he met with in the appointment of Buktusin to the government of Khorasan, a country so long in possession of his father. It was returned to him for answer that he was already in possession of the territories of Balak, Tormuz, and Herat, which was part of the empire, and that there was a necessity to divide the favors of Bokhara among her friends. Buktusin, it was also insinuated, had been a faithful and good servant, which seemed to throw a reflection upon the family of Ghazni, who had rendered themselves independent in the governments they held of the royal house of Samania. Mahmud, not discouraged by this answer, sent Hassan Jamavi with rich presents to the court of Bokhara and a letter in the following terms, that he hoped the pure spring of friendship, which had flowed in the time of his father, should not now be polluted with the ashes of indignity nor Mahmud be reduced to the necessity of divesting himself of that obedience which he had hitherto paid to the imperial family of Samania. When Hassan delivered his embassy, his capacity and elocution appeared so great to the emperor that, desirous to gain him over to his interest by any means, he bribed him at last with the honors of the wazirate, but never returned an answer to Mahmud. That prince, having received information of this transaction, through necessity turned his face toward Nishapur, and marched to Morgab. Buktusin, in the meantime, treacherously entered into a confederacy with Faik, and, forming a conspiracy in the camp of Munzur, seized upon the person of that prince, and cruelly put out his eyes. Abdul, the younger brother of Munzur, who was but a boy, was advanced by the traitors to the throne. Being, however, afraid of the resentment of Mahmud, the conspirators hastened to Merv, whither they were pursued by the king with great expedition. Finding themselves upon their march hard-pressed in the rear by Mahmud, they halted and gave him battle. But the sin of ingratitude had darkened the face of their fortune, so that the breeze of victory blew upon the standards of the king of Ghazni. Faik carried off the young king and fled to Bukhara, and Buktusin was not heard of for some time, but at length he found his way to his fellows in iniquity and began to collect his scattered troops. Fake, in the meantime, fell ill and soon afterward expired. Elak, the Uzbek king, seizing upon the opportunity offered him by that event, marched with an army from Kashgar to Bokhara and deprived Abdul Malik and his adherents of life and empire at the same time. Thus perished the last of the house of Samania, which had reigned for the space of 127 years.
The emperor of Ghazni, at this juncture, employed himself in settling the government of the provinces of Balak and Khorasan, the affairs of which he regulated in such an able manner that the fame thereof reached the ears of the caliph of Baghdad, the illustrious Al-Qadar Bala, of the noble house of Abbas. The caliph sent him a rich dress of honor, such as he had never before bestowed on any king, and dignified Mahmud with the titles of the protector of the state and treasurer of fortune. In the end of the month Zakata, in the year of the Hegira 390, Mahmud hastened from the city of Balak to Herat, and from Herat to Sistan, where he defeated Caliph, the son of Ahmet, the governor of that province of the extinguished family of Bokhara, and returned to Ghazni. He then turned his face toward India, took many forts and provinces, in which, having appointed his own governors, he returned to his dominions, where he spread the carpet of justice so smoothly upon the face of the earth that the love of him and loyalty gained a place in every heart. Having negotiated a treaty with Elak the Uzbek, the province of Maver Ulner was ceded to him, for which he made an ample return in presence of great value, and the closest friendship and familiarity for a long time existed between the kings. Mahmud made a vow to heaven that if ever he should be blessed with tranquility in his own dominions, he would turn his arms against the idolaters of Hindustan. He marched in the year 391, Ad Higira, from Ghazni with 10,000 of his chosen horse, and came to Peshawar, where Jaipal, the Indian prince of Lahore, with 12,000 horse and 30,000 foot, supported by 300 chain elephants, opposed him. On Saturday, the 8th of the month Mohirim, in the year 392 of the Higira, an obstinate battle ensued, in which the emperor was victorious. Jaipal, with 15 of his principal officers, was taken prisoner, and 5,000 of his troops lay dead upon the field. Mahmud in this action acquired great wealth and fame, for round the neck of Jaipal alone were found 16 strings of jewels, each of which was valued at 180,000 rupees. After this victory, the emperor marched from Peshawar, and investing the fort of Batandi, reduced it, releasing his prisoners upon the payment of a large ransom, and the further stipulation of an annual tribute, then returned to Ghazni. It was in those days a custom of the Hindus that whatever Raja was twice defeated by the Moslems should be, by that disgrace, rendered ineligible for further command. Jaipal, in compliance with this custom, having raised his son to the government, ordered a funeral pile to be prepared, upon which he sacrificed himself to his gods. A year later, Mahmud again marched into Sistan and brought Caliph, who had mismanaged his government, prisoner to Ghazni. Finding that the tribute from Hindustan had not been paid in the year AH-395, he directed his march toward the city of Batea, and, leaving the boundaries of Multan, arrived at Tahera, which was fortified with an exceeding high wall and a deep, broad ditch. Tahera was at that time governed by a prince called Bakhera, who had, in the pride of power and wealth, greatly troubled the Mohammedan governors whom Mahmud had delegated to rule in Hindustan. Bakhera had also refused to pay his proportion of the tribute to Anandpal, the son of Jaipal, of whom he held his authority. When Mahmud entered the territories of Bakhera, that prince called out his troops to receive him, and, taking possession of a strong position, engaged the Mohammedan army for the space of three days, in which time they suffered so much that they were on the point of abandoning the attack. But on the fourth day, 
Mahmud appeared at the head of his troops and addressed them at length, encouraging them to win glory. He concluded by telling them that this day he had devoted himself to conquest or to death. Bakhera, on his part, invoked the gods at the temple and prepared with his former resolution to repel the enemy. The Mahometans charged with their usual impetuosity, but were repulsed with great slaughter. Yet returning with fresh courage and redoubled rage, the attack was continued until the evening, when Mahmud, turning his face to the holy Kaaba, invoked the aid of the prophet in the presence of his army. Advance, advance, cried then the king. Our prayers have found favor with God. Immediately a great shout arose among the host, and the Moslems, pressing forward as if they courted death, obliged the enemy to give ground, and pursued them in full retreat to the gates of the city. The emperor, having next morning invested the place, gave orders to make preparations for filling up the ditch, which task in a few days was nearly completed. Bakera, finding he could not long defend the city, determined to leave only a small garrison for its defense, and, accordingly, one night he marched out with the rest of his troops and took position in a wood on the banks of the Indus. Mahmud, being informed of his retreat, detached part of his army to pursue him. Bakera, by this time, was deserted by fortune and consequently by most of his friends. He found himself surrounded by the Mahometans and attempted in vain to force his way through them. When just on the point of being taken prisoner, he turned his sword against his breast, while the most of his adherents were slaughtered in attempting to avenge his death. Mahmud, in the meantime, had taken to Hera by assault, and found there one hundred and twenty elephants, many slaves, and much plunder. He annexed the town and its dependencies to his own dominions, and returned victorious to Ghazni. In the year AH-396, he formed the design of reconquering Multan, which had revolted from his rule. Ahmet Lodi, the regent of Multan, had formerly acknowledged the suzerainty of Mahmud, and after him his grandson Daoud, till the expedition against Bakera, when Daoud withdrew his allegiance. The king marched in the beginning of the spring with a great army from Ghazni, and was met by Ananpal, the son of Jaipal, prince of Lahore, in the hills of Peshawar, whom he defeated and obliged to fly into Kashmir. Ananpal had entered into an alliance with Daoud, and as there were two passes only by which the Mahometans could enter Multan, Ananpal had taken upon himself to secure that by the way of Peshawar, which Mahmud chanced to take. The sultan, returning from the pursuit, entered Multan by the way of Batanda, which was his first intention. When Daoud received intelligence of the fate of Ananpal, thinking himself too weak to keep the field, he shut himself up in his fortified place and humbly solicited forgiveness for his fault, promising to pay a large tribute and in the future to obey implicitly the sultan's command. Mahmud received him again as a vassal and prepared to return to Ghazni when news was brought to him from Arsala, who commanded at Herat that Alak, the king of Kashgar, had invaded his realm with an army. The king hastened to settle the affairs of Hindustan, which he put into the hands of Shakpal, a Hindu prince who had resided with Abu Ali, governor of Peshawar, and had turned Musulman, taking the name of Zab Sais. The particulars of the war of Mahmud with Alak are these. It has already been mentioned that an uncommon friendship had existed between this Alak, the Uzbek king of Kashgar, a kingdom in Tartary, and Mahmud. The emperor himself was married to the daughter of Alak, but some factious men about the two courts, by misrepresentations of the princes to one another, changed their former friendship to enmity. 
When Mahmud therefore marched into Hindustan, and had left the field of Khorasan almost destitute of troops, Ilak took advantage of the opportunity and resolved to appropriate that province to himself. To accomplish his design, he ordered his general-in-chief, Sapastagi, with a large force to enter Khorasan, and Jafir Tagi at the same time was appointed to command in the territory of Balak. Arsala, the governor of Herat, being informed of these motions, hastened to Ghazni that he might secure the capital. In the meantime, the chiefs of Khorasan, finding themselves deserted and being in no condition to oppose the enemy, submitted themselves to Sapastagi, the general of Alak. But Mahmud, having by great marches reached Ghazni, flowed onward like a torrent with his army toward Balak. Tagi, who had by this time possessed himself of the place, fled toward Tormuz at his approach. The emperor then detached Arsala with a great part of his army to drive Sapastagi out of Khorasan, and he also, upon the approach of the troops of Ghazni, abandoned Herat and marched toward maber ul -Ner. The king of Kashgar, seeing the bad state of his affairs, solicited the aid of Kudar, king of Chutan, a province of Tartary on the confines of China, and that prince marched to join him with 50,000 horse. Strengthened by this alliance, he crossed with the confederate armies the river Gaon, which was five parasangs from Balak, and opposed himself to the camp of Mahmud. That monarch immediately drew up his army in order of battle, giving the command of the center to his brother, the noble Nazir, supported by Abu Nazir, governor of Gorgon, and by Abdallah, a chief of reputation in arms. The right wing he committed to the care of Alta Sash, an old experienced officer, while the left was the charge of the valiant Arsala, a chief of the Afghans. The front of his line he strengthened with five hundred chain elephants, with open spaces behind them to facilitate their retreat in case of a defeat. The king of Kashgar posted himself in the center, the noble Kudir led the right, and Tagi the left. The armies advanced to the charge. The shouts of warriors, the neighing of horses, and the clashing of arms reached the broad arch of heaven, while dust obscured the face of day. Alak, advancing with some chosen squadrons, threw the center of Mahmud's army into disorder. Mahmud, perceiving the enemy's progress, leaped from his horse and, kissing the ground, invoked the aid of the Almighty. He then mounted an elephant of war, encouraged his troops, and made a violent assault upon Alak. The elephant, seizing the standard-bearer of the enemy, folded his trunk around him and tossed him aloft in the air. He then surged forward like a mountain removed from its base by an earthquake, and trod the enemy under his feet like locusts. When the troops of Ghazni saw their king forcing his way alone through the enemy's ranks, they rushed forward with headlong impetuosity and drove the enemy with great slaughter before them. Ilak, abandoned by fortune and his army, turned his face to fly. He crossed the river with a few of his surviving friends, never afterward appearing in the field to dispute the victory with Mahmud. The king, after this triumph, marched two days after the runaways. On the third night, a great storm of wind and snow overtook the Ghaznian army in the desert. The king's tents were pitched with much difficulty, while the army was obliged to lie in the snow. Mahmud, having ordered great fires to be kindled around his tents, they became so warm that many of the courtiers began to take off their upper garments. When a facetious chief, whose name was Dalk, came in shivering with the cold, at which the king, observing, said, Go out, Dalk, and tell the winter that he may burst his cheeks with blustering, for here we value not his resentment. 
Dalk went out accordingly, and, returning in a short time, kissed the ground, and thus addressed the king. I have delivered the king's message to winter, but the surly season replied that if his hands cannot tear the skirts of royalty and hurt the attendance of the king, yet he will so use his power tonight on his army that in the morning Mahmoud will be obliged to saddle his own horses. The king smiled at this reply, but it presently rendered him more thoughtful, and he determined to proceed no farther. In the morning, some hundreds of men and horses were found to have perished with the cold. Mahmoud at the same time received advices from India that Zab Sais, the renegade Hindu, had thrown off his allegiance, and, returning to his former religion, expelled all the officers who had been appointed by the king from their respective departments. The king immediately determined to punish this renegade, and with great expedition advanced toward India. He sent on a part of his cavalry in front, which, coming unexpectedly upon Zab Sais, defeated him and brought him prisoner to the king. The rebel was fined four lakhs of rupees, of which Mahmud made a present to his treasurer and made Zab Sais a prisoner for life. Mahmud, having thus settled his affairs in India, returned in autumn to Ghazni, where he remained for the winter in peace. But in the spring of the year AH 399, Anandpal, sovereign of Lahore, began to raise disturbance in Multan, so that the king was obliged to undertake another expedition into those parts, with a great army, to correct the Indians. Anandpal, hearing of his intentions, sent ambassadors everywhere to request the assistance of the other princes of Hindustan, who considered the extirpation of the Moslems from India as a meritorious and political, as well as a religious, action. Accordingly, the princes of Ugin, Gwalior, Kalingir, Kanoge, Delhi, and Ajmer entered into a confederacy, and, collecting their forces, advanced toward the heads of the Indus, with the greatest army that had been for some centuries seen upon the field in India. The two armies came in sight of one another in a great plain near the confines of the province of Peshawar. They remained there encamped forty days without action, but the troops of the idolaters daily increased in number. They were joined by the Gakers and other tribes with their armies, and surrounded the Mohammedans who, fearing a general assault, were obliged to entrench themselves. The king, having thus secured himself, ordered a thousand archers to the front to endeavor to provoke the enemy to advance to the entrenchments. The archers accordingly were attacked by the Gakers, who, notwithstanding all the king could do, pursued the retreating bowmen within the trenches, where a dreadful scene of carnage ensued on both sides, in which five thousand Moslems in a few minutes were slain. The enemy's soldiers being now cut down as fast as they advanced, the attack grew weaker, when suddenly the elephant which carried the prince of Lahore, who was chief in command, took fright at the report of a gun, and turned tail in flight. This circumstance struck the Hindus with a panic, for, thinking they were deserted by their general, they immediately followed the example. Abdallah, with six thousand Arabian horse, and Arsala, with ten thousand Turks, Afghans, and Chiligis, pursued the enemy for two days and nights, so that twenty thousand Hindus were killed in their flight in addition to the great multitude that fell on the field of battle. Thirty elephants with much rich plunder were brought to the king, who, to establish the faith, marched against the Hindus of Nagricot, breaking down their idols and destroying their temples. There was at that time, in the territory of Nagricot, a strong fort called Bima, which Mahmud invested after having destroyed the country round about with fire and sword. Bima was built by a prince of the same name, on the top of a steep mountain, 
And here the Hindus, on account of its strength, had deposited the wealth consecrated to their idols in all the neighboring kingdoms, so that in this fort, it was said, there was a greater quantity of gold, silver, precious stones, and pearls than ever had been collected in the royal treasury of any prince on earth. Mahmud invested the place with such expedition that the Hindus had not time to send troops into it for its defense, the greater part of the garrison having been sent to the field. Those within consisted, for the most part, of priests, who, being adverse to the bloody business of war, in a few days solicited permission to capitulate. Their request being granted, they opened the gates and fell upon their faces before Mahmud, who, with a few of his officers and attendants, immediately entered and took possession of the place. In Bima were found 700,000 diners, 700 mounds of gold and silver plate, 40 mounds of pure gold in ingots, 2,000 mounds of silver bullion, and 20 mounds of various jewels set, which had been collecting from the time of Bima. With this immense treasure, the king returned to Ghazni, and in the year AH 400 held a magnificent festival where he displayed to the people his wealth in golden thrones and in other rich receptacles, in a great plain without the city of Ghazni, and after the feast every individual received a princely gift. In the following year Mahmud led his army toward Gore. The native prince of that country, Mohammed of the Sur tribe of Afghans, with ten thousand troops, opposed him. The king, finding that the troops of Gore defended themselves in their entrenchments with such obstinacy, commanded his army to make a feint of retreating, to lure the enemy out of their fortified camp, which maneuver proved successful. The Gorians, being deceived, pursued the army of Ghazni to the plain, where the king, facing round with his troops, attacked them with great impetuosity. Mohammed was taken prisoner and brought to the king, but in his despair he had taken poison, which he always kept under his ring, and died in a few hours." His country was annexed to the dominion of Ghazni. Some historians affirm that neither the sovereigns of Gore nor its inhabitants were Muslims till after this victory, while others of good credit assure us that they were converted many years before, even so early as the time of the famous Ali, the son-in-law of the Prophet. Mahmud, in the same year, was under the necessity of marching again to Multan, which had revolted, but having soon reduced it and cut off a great number of the chiefs, he brought Daoud, the son of Nazir, the rebellious governor, prisoner to Ghazni, and imprisoned him in the fort of Gorki for life. In the year AH 402, the passion of war fermenting in the mind of Mahmud, he resolved upon the conquest of Tanisar in the kingdom of Hindustan. It had reached the ears of the king that Tanisar was held in the same veneration by idolaters as Mecca was by the Mahometans, that there they had set up a great number of idols, the chief of which they called Jug-Sum. This Jug-Sum, they pretended to say, existed when as yet the world existed not. When the king reached the country about the five branches of the Indus, he desired that, according to the treaty that existed between himself and Annanpal, he should not be disturbed by his march through that country. He accordingly sent an embassy to Annanpal, advising him of his intentions, and desiring him to send guards for the protection of his towns and villages, which he, the king, would take care should not be molested by the followers of his camp. Annanpal agreed to this proposal and prepared an entertainment for the reception of the king, issuing an order for all his subjects to supply the royal camp with every necessary of life. In the meantime, he sent his brother with two thousand horse to meet the king and deliver this message. 
that he was the subject and slave of the king, but that he begged permission to acquaint his majesty that Tanisar was the principal place of worship of the inhabitants of that country, that if it was a virtue required by the religion of Mahmud to destroy the religion of others, he had already acquitted himself of that duty to his god in the destruction of the temple of Nagracote. But if he should be pleased to alter his resolution against Tanisar, Anandpal would undertake that the amount of the revenues of that country should be annually paid to Mahmud to reimburse the expense of his expedition, that besides, he, on his own part, would present him with fifty elephants and jewels to a considerable amount. The king replied that in the Mohammedan religion it was an established tenet that the more the glory of the prophet was exalted and the more his followers exerted themselves in the subversion of idolatry, the greater would be their reward in heaven, that therefore it was his firm resolution with the assistance of God to root out the abominable worship of idols from the land of India. Why then should he spare Tanisar? When this news reached the Indian king of Delhi, he prepared to oppose the invaders, sending messages all over Hindustan to acquaint the Rajahs that Mahmud, without any reason or provocation, was marching with an innumerable army to destroy Tanisar, which was under his immediate protection, that if a dam was not expeditiously raised against this roaring torrent, the country of Hindustan would soon be overwhelmed in ruin, and the tree of prosperity rooted up, that therefore it was advisable for them to join their forces at Tanisar to oppose with united strength the impending danger. But Mahmud reached Tanisar before they could take any measures for its defense, plundered the city and broke the idols, sending Jugsum to Ghazni, where he was soon stripped of his ornaments. He then ordered his head to be struck off and his body to be thrown on the highway. According to the account of the historian Hago Muhammad of Kandahar, there was a ruby found in one of the temples which weighed 450 miskals. Mahmud, after these transactions at Tanisar, proceeded to Delhi, which he also took, and wanted greatly to annex to his dominions, but his nobles told him that it was impossible to keep the Rajaship of Delhi till he had entirely subjected Multan to Mohammedan rule, destroyed the power, and exterminated the family of Anandpal, prince of Lahore, which lay between Delhi and the northern dominions of Mahmud. The king approved of this counsel and immediately determined to proceed no further against that country till he had accomplished the reduction of Multan and Anandpal. But that prince behaved with so much policy and hospitality that he changed the purpose of the king, who returned to Ghazni. He brought to Ghazni 40,000 captives and much wealth, so that that city could now be hardly distinguished in riches from India itself. End of section 16